The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, we're ready to get started into our study tonight, so I don't have other announcements to talk to you about. So unless someone should say that we don't read Scripture when we preach around here, let's just look at the book of Matthew for just a moment, chapter 16. And uh, let me just read the preceding verses to our, our uh, text verse that we're always using, Matthew 16, 18. So if you just want to look for a minute here, chapter 16 in Matthew and verse number 13. Uh, everybody know where Matthew is? Okay, good. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That, of course, is our subject, the church, the perpetuity of the church. And this evening we're getting ever closer to the end of our study of Baptist history. And uh, as I say that, I have already have in the back of my mind that every time that I get a little bit further into this, I seem to add another sermon to the end of the sermons. Um, I, I've been studying and working on the uh, time of revivalism in America in the 18th century, 19th century rather, and that's just become a, a very interesting thing to me. And so when we study that particular part of it, we're going to take some time to look at some doctrinal issues, and then we'll be really uh, taking a good look at, at the Bible. Because I know that, that in studying church history, sometimes it's not conducive that we're actually expressing or expounding, uh, expositing, I should say, a, a certain portion of Scripture. That's just not what this particular study is about. But when we get to that particular part, we are going to look at Scripture as we look at the uh, doctrines that we hold to. But as we proceeded through these 17 centuries of church history where we've come to at this particular place, we're, we're just blessed that we're able to find Baptist churches in all of these centuries, all of them holding still to a very consistent approach to basic doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, it, it is impossible for us to say that every doctrine that Baptists have believed in the past or any individual church, what they believed in the past, is absolutely correct any more than we can say that Baptist churches today have every single doctrine right because we know that we don't. But what we seek to do as we go through this and as we try to bring our church around to the, to the correct doctrines of the teach of, uh, doctrines of Christ, what we're always trying to do is improve the accuracy of the doctrine that we have. And the only way we can do that is we keep on studying the Word of God. And when we come to these later periods of church history, here's where we're very, very fortunate, or very blessed, I should say, in that we have some very good, even great theologians from the past 
who made it their business to study Baptist doctrine, study the Bible, and get those doctrines down into a, a form that we can understand them, into statements of faith and so forth. And so we have Baptist theologians like, of the past, great men like John Gill and uh, Benjamin Keach and Robert Haldane, um, uh, also Andrew Fuller, that would be another one that we could mention, many, many more that I don't have time to talk about. And they wrote these, these great theological works that, that really defend the doctrines of the faith. We know what they believe, we have their writings, and we also know that they are forefathers of Baptists in America. And I do wish that there were more Baptists that really looked at the writings of those men because they're, they're a connection that we have to the, uh, the, the doctrine of the apostles, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It's a great connection that we have to read those. And uh, I think that's something that we ought to know and what Baptists have believed throughout the centuries and really understand what it is that makes us Baptist. Now, in the last lesson, we talked about English Baptist, and we talked about their confessions of faith and that reflected their informed opinions upon what the doctrines of the church were. And their interpretations of Scripture, uh, that, a word that we use for that is the word hermeneutics. Uh, if you don't know that word, hermeneutics is about the interpretation of Scripture. And we, we understand by the hermeneutic of these men in the past that many of our Baptist churches today don't hold to the same interpretations of Scripture as they held. At least on certain doctrines, they don't. But when you see the consistency of, of Baptist churches over 1,900 years of our history, and then you come to Baptists in the past 75 years who disagree with that old hermeneutic, then it's not very hard for you to see which one has gone off track. And so we, we look at the old great Baptist confessions of faith and the scholars who put those things together, and we would gladly put their thinking up against uh, the people that we have today, some of the shallow thinkers that we have today, or at least what I would call some shallow thinkers that are in Baptist colleges all across America of every stripe of Baptist. In 1644, Baptists in London met to discuss Scripture, and they started to write a statement of faith, a compendium of Baptist belief that was known as the First London Baptist Confession of 1644. And then in 1689, that confession was expounded, or I should not, not expounded, but extended, uh, became more inclusive of other things, expanded somewhat, and there were other Baptist churches that joined into the uh, development of that. And that confession of faith became known as the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. And these two, conf two confessions of faith, the 1644 and the 1689, became the uh, basis of the two most well-known Baptist confessions of faith in America. And that was the Philadelphia Confession of 1742 and the New Hampshire Confession of 1833. And those confessions are remarkably similar in their doctrines. Uh, the New Hampshire Confession is actually a shortened version of the, of the 1742 Philadelphia Confession. But when it comes to the doctrines, of the main doctrines of faith that, that we believe, those two documents are very, very similar, and uh, they, they, they have the same statements about those particular doctrines. Now, in six, oh, no, not 1688, in 1998, the Berean Baptist Church, it wasn't 1600s, but it was in... It, we haven't been around that long. But 1998, the Berean Baptist Church adopted 
the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Now, as I said, we, we, the confessions of faith are, uh, well, I should say this, that they're not Scripture themselves. They are interpretations of Scripture, so we don't put the confession of faith in place of Scripture. But uh, the confessions of faith are remarkably similar in their consistency on Baptist doctrine. And so as we look at that confession of faith, in 1998, our, our church decided that what we needed to do after much discussion uh, to expand upon our own statement of faith and make it more comprehensive. And so we adopted that, that New Hampshire Confession of 1833. But as I said just a moment ago, that's an interpretation of Scripture, and uh, we would not necessarily stand by every single statement that's made in those confessions. For example, the 1644 Confession has a much better statement on the church, the visible church, than does the 1689 Confession. And when we come to the New Hampshire Confession of 1833 that we adopted in this church, we had to make some slight changes to some of the articles. For instance, we took the article on the Lord's Supper and we made a clearer statement on restricted communion that was contained than what was contained in that confession. Also, in the area of the church itself, we made a clearer statement, we think, on local church doctrine. And then we come to the area of eschatology, there also we made a change, and that was to make a better statement or a clearer statement on the, time, on the timing of, or the, the events of the second coming, the millennium and so forth, and uh, those events that surround the second coming of Christ. So we, we, we changed those things, but none of those changes that we actually made in the confession had any bearing whatsoever on what makes us a New Testament church. We didn't have to go into the core doctrines of the faith that make us a church because those statements are very good. So we just changed things a little bit to reflect particular areas that we have an interest in uh, that was different in that statement of faith. Ecclesi a little bit of ecclesiology, a little bit of eschatology, and then a little bit on the ordinances of the church. Now, uh, it's then import important for us to remember, though, that as we look at these confessions of faith, that when it comes to the soteriological position, that is, the doctrine of salvation, we are in agreement with those Baptists that were back in 1833, 1689, 1644, and even going back to the older confessions than that, because those aren't the first conf uh, confessions that Baptists had. But uh, as far as English Baptists are concerned, we took our confessions of faith in America from those two statements, the 1644 and the 1689, and they become the basis for Baptist belief in America. I mean, the Bible and these confessions that explain our interpretation of the Bible. Now, if you wonder then why it is that here in Berean Baptist, I preach the, the uh, doctrines of grace, well, here would be the reason. First and foremost, that it is the doctrine that was taught by Jesus and the apostles. That's the biblical doctrine. That's why I teach it. Secondly, our Baptist forefathers preserved those doctrines throughout 21 centuries of history. And number three, it holds the most joyful comfort that we can have in knowing this fact, salvation is all of the Lord. So if you want to know why I teach those things, that's why I do. I'm sticking with the Bible and with our old Baptist confessions of faith. Now, I'll say once again... Remember this, that a confession of faith does not replace the Bible. The statements that are made in our confession of faith are deduced from the Bible, but they're not a replacement for your own study of Scripture. They are interpretations that are subject to human error. So we don't agree on all the minor details. 
Now, as I said, that doesn't affect any core fundamental doctrines that we believe, the slight changes that we, that we have made. So here's one thing that I can tell you then, knowing this information, what the Baptist confessions of faith were in America uh, at the very beginning, I can tell you with 100% confidence that that was the position of almost all Baptists, and I could put the number 100% right there beside that, you didn't find anybody that deviated from those doctrines. And when you did find somebody, I said nobody, of course there were somebody, but the, the large number, the body of Baptists held to these beliefs. And so if you found somebody that did not agree with those things that were in the confession, you found your oddball. That's a completely, that person uh, is not holding what people consider to be Baptist doctrine. That would have been the oddball. Well, continuing that, we come to our study tonight, and we're looking at point number seven on your outline, and this is the history of American Baptist. How and when did Baptists come to America? Well, as I've stated in the last lesson, our connection is to the English Baptist, and those who sought freedom in England, uh, and also in Holland for that matter, beginning in the 17th century, of freedom to worship God in their own way, not being dictated by the, the Church of England or by anybody else. Now, among the first settlers to arrive in America, there were Baptists. Well, they were small in number, but there were Baptists that were present in that first attempt to colonize America. Now, all of you, I think, know what that first colony was and who started it. That was the Pilgrims. So we're going to talk about the Pilgrims for just a minute. Uh, when I was going to school, which was in the last century, uh, when I was going to school, uh, we were taught the truths of these people called pilgrims and what they came to America for. Today in our public schools, there is a revisionist history that really clouds the issue about why the pilgrims came. But we were taught what the real intent was, uh, that they were people that trusted in God. There was no question that faith in God was the driving factor that brought them to this country. Whereas the revisionist history today says, well, when the pilgrims got here, they were more thankful to the Indians than they were thankful to God. But the pilgrims, uh, they, were, they consisted of English, Puritans, and separatists. Now, some of you, you hear me use the word Puritan all the time, and maybe you don't understand what that is. A Puritan is not a denomination. It's not a particular denomination, but it was a movement among several different groups of people, not just Baptists, but among other groups of people that called uh, believers in Christ to a life of holiness. And among the Puritans, there were Baptists. They were called to a life of holiness. And so the Puritans preached piety in their worship, and they stood up against the practices of the Church of England that... that they rightly thought was too much like Roman Catholicism. Now, the Puritans were very godly people. If you, if you want to read tremendously heartwarming theology, the people that you need to read after are the Puritans. I don't, I don't know if there's ever been a people that had such a high, exalted view of God and a correspondingly low view of man in his depravity. They had those two things exactly right. Now, in those days, back when the pilgrims first came here, Puritans was, or Puritanism was a term of derision. And it still is today. 
People really don't much, very much like living in piety and holiness and absolute surrender to God. And so a synonym that is put in the place of Puritanism is the word prudishness. That if you were a Puritan, you were considered to be a prude. Everybody know what a prude is? Okay, basically, let me give you the definition of a prude. A prude to you is somebody holier than you are. That's basically it. If they're holier than you are, they're a prude. And this is what the Puritans were called. They were prudes. They had a higher moral character than people that were around them. So there were separatists among the pilgrims, and separatists are those, of course, who wanted to separate from the Church of England. Uh, separatism is the defining mark of that group. And the reason that they left England is because they wanted to be separate from the Church of England, and they wanted to have a, a, a reduced type of interaction among people of their own faith without having any kind of interference in their religious worship. So the goal of coming here was religious freedom. And anything else that you want to tack on to that, anything the revisionists would want to tack on to that is secondary. The main thing is they wanted to come here to worship God in the way that God wants to be worshipped, and they wanted to do it without interference. Now, interestingly, in 1620, the greatest enemy to them was not Catholicism. The greatest enemy was the, the uh, Protestant government of England that wanted to dictate the way that they were supposed to worship. Now, I don't have time to go into all this history now, but we have the act of uniformity during that time in England, and uh, actually preachers were thrown out of their uh, pulpits because they wouldn't take a mandated government form of worship. In their liturgies and all of those things, they, the, the government was trying to mandate, they, mandate that and to... Um, consolidate all of that to make it everybody doing the same thing and these ministers wouldn't accept that and so they were thrown out of their pulpits. So some of these people that came to America had experienced that. Their pastors being thrown out of the pulpits and they wanted to worship the Lord in freedom as I said the way that God wants to worship them. So wants him to worship, wants them to have him them worship him. Uh, so what we have then is in, in 1620 when James I was the king of England um, he, he was the king, and although he did permit such things as the translation of the King James Bible, that's why we have the King James, uh, King James permitted the translation of that. And um, we tend to think sometimes that all of the people in England, when all these religious things were happening, were Puritans, or there's a great number of Puritans and separatists, that the religious climate of England is one of holiness, and people are really concerned about getting into the Bible and things like that. But the truth of the matter is that the religious climate in England in the, in the 17th century is not, was not much different than it is today. There was a cold deadness in the Church of England, and they, they, they weren't really worshiping God. It was stale and it was cold. And the Puritans that were in England never actually reached more than 25% of the population. At mo most of the time, it was much lower than that. And in the 17th century, the Puritans were persecuted. And Baptists were among that number. And so what the Puritans and the Separatists did, many of them moved to Holland to try to find some religious freedom there. But then they thought that it, it would be better, that they would fare better if they just went to a completely different place and found complete freedom by starting a new colony in America. And so in the late summer of, of 1620, there were 102 of these religious dissidents, as 
their enemies would call them. 102 of them hired an agent by the name of Thomas Weston, and they chartered this old merchant vessel called the Mayflower. And that's really what it was. What it was, it was an old, worn-out ship, the Mayflower, but it was all that the pilgrims could afford. And when they first started to come to America, when they, they left Plymouth, England, they started out with a second ship as well, which was the Speedwell. Some of you that may remember your American history, they started out also with the Speedwell, but they got a little ways out, and before they got very far, they had to return to the harbor because the Speedwell was leaking. So they decided that the best thing for them to do was to put everybody on one ship, so everybody got onto the Mayflower, and they started out for America. Now, William Bradford, who was the leader of the people on the Mayflower, the Puritans and these uh, separatist pilgrims that were coming to America, he accused the captain of the Speedwell of cowardice, of purposely sabotaging that ship because he was afraid that if they got out that they were going to starve to death before they could ever get to America. So he accused him of, of uh, sabotaging that ship. So, you know, it's just like the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, all men have not faith. The Puritans had faith. The captain of that ship didn't have any faith. And the pilgrims knew that when they started out for America, they were in for a very monumental struggle. They knew that there was much uncertainty in trying to get a colony started in America because it had been tried many times before. And until the pilgrims got here, there wasn't a permanent settlement in America, not, not one that had lasted. There wasn't one there when they got there. And so they knew that this was going to be a monumental struggle. They knew that they didn't have, wouldn't have the support of England. They weren't sanctioned as per se in order to do this. So they knew they weren't going to have any kind of uh, official support. But what they did was they trusted in God. And they were willing to accept the consequences of the journey. They believed that, and they had faith in God so much that this is what God wanted them to do, that they risked their lives to come here. And if God, if it was in the will of God, they would make it. They would get here. God would prosper them. But they also had in their mind that should this not be in the will of God, then that's all right too, because we'll suffer the consequences. It's not good to live outside of the will of God. And so on September 16th, 1620, they sailed from Plymouth, England. And then after just a little bit more than two months, they arrived at Cape Cod near Provincetown on November the 9th. Now, November the 9th, you, you see that's just a little ways away from the third Thursday that we normally make Thanksgiving time. So they arrived just a little bit before what would traditionally be our Thanksgiving. But the important thing about this 102 people as it concerns us is that in this number of pilgrims, there were Baptists, a small number of Baptists. Now, this is what Cotton Mather, who was one of the uh, uh, great Puritans, a great man that was born in America uh, back at that time, this is what he wrote about Baptists that were among early settlers of this country. He said, some few of these people have been among the planners of New England from the beginning and have been welcomed to the communion of our churches, which they enjoyed, reserving their particular opinions unto themselves. Now, in other words, although there were Baptists among these English, these pilgrim separatists, for the time being, it was best for them to hold their opinions privately and not try to change the opinions of those that they were confederate with. Now, let me explain that statement for just a moment. 
That doesn't mean that they were compromisers. And the reason that it doesn't is because the Puritan people were definitely gospel-oriented people. The pilgrims were gospel-oriented people, and the Baptists were in perfect agreement with them on their soteriology. Now, as the Apostle Paul said, what we have to do as Christians is as much as we possibly can to live peaceably with all men. And so this is what uh, these Baptists that were among these people did, these, these pilgrims, although they were of, of a difference of opinion on certain matters concerning the Bible, they were right with them on the doctrine of salvation. But the problem that we have for Baptists really is that the pilgrims, when they came to America, even though they were seeking religious freedom, there was no such thing as religious freedom for the Baptist. They didn't intend to grant religious freedom to anybody else. This is their colony and they're going to practice what they want to practice. And the Baptists had to live with that until such time that the colony grew strong enough that they were able to go out on their own. And so in the, in the original colony there in the winter of 1620, I mean, prudence dictates and Christian liberty dictates that what they really need to do is work together for the survival of that entire colony. Now, the next thing that I'd like to look at as we think about Baptists that were among those pilgrims that were... Uh, that came to America in 1620, is the case of Roger Williams. Now, he might be familiar to some of you, but Roger Williams, uh, he wasn't on the Mayflower, but he came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony about 11 years later in 1631. And Roger Williams was also a separatist, but what he was unwilling to do was to go along and get along. Uh, Roger Williams did not want to keep his opinions to himself. And so what he was doing, he was always bucking the system there. And what he did was he, he resisted the power of the civil magistrates. J.M. Cramp, in, in his volume of Baptist history, noted this, that, that what that amounted to, his dissent against them probably amounted to nothing more than this, and that is teaching individuality of religion and the stress on personal piety as essential to union with the church. Well, let me translate that for you. That statement is a statement against infant baptism. Now, the Protestant brought, Protestants brought infants into the church through baptism, even though they were incapable of professing faith. Now, Williams himself was, was convinced of believer's baptism. He'd come to that position some years earlier in England. And so, essentially, Roger Williams was a man who had baptistic beliefs. Well, after this, a short time after that, the, that he came, the Massachusetts Bay Colony said that everybody had to swear allegiance to the king. And Roger Williams thought, well, that's a matter of personal conviction. That's a matter of personal conscience. And so he wouldn't swear allegiance to the king only because he believed in strict separation of church and state. And so he refused to swear his allegiance, so that put him at odds with the colony. And that affair actually got completely born, blown out of proportion. And so Williams was banished from the colony in 1635, and he was convicted of heresy and sedition. Now, at that point, he, he took a band of followers with him, and he went beyond the borders of Massachusetts into unchartered territory. And that was to the area that we now know as Rhode Island. Well, we'd have to ask, or you're probably wondering, why is Roger Williams so important to what we're talking about here? Well, his importance lies in this, that it is claimed that Roger Williams was the one who started the first Baptist church in America. Now, his, his followers and Roger Williams 
agreed with Baptist principles. And so it's assumed that he started the first Baptist church on this continent in 1638. But the real question is, was Roger Williams a Baptist? And if he wasn't, then how was he able to start a Baptist church? Now, you might not know this, but the idea that Roger Williams was a Baptist, in fact, is actually a modern development of history. Now, all of these weeks that we've talked about church history, we've been discussing what is it that makes a true church? What is it that makes us Baptist? What makes a real Baptist and makes a Baptist church? Now, I, I would think we would have to say, you would have to say, that a Baptist church, baptism must be important, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't we agree with that? Baptism is a very important thing for the Baptist church. Now, here's the thing about Roger Williams. He believed in credo-baptism. Now, you might want to write that down. Uh, Credo-baptism simply means believer's baptism. Credo comes from the Latin word uh, creed. It comes, or a creed comes from the Latin word credo, I should say. And a creed is something that you believe. So Baptists said, you must assent to the creed, or you must believe something, you must understand that creed before you can be baptized. And so that's why we call it credo-baptism. And the creed actually, of course, is believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must be able to do that before you can be baptized. That's credo-baptism. So the argument between Protestants and Baptists on this issue is the Baptists believe in credo-baptism and Protestants believe in pedo-baptism. So what we're talking about is believer's baptism versus infant baptism. So Roger Williams was a credo-baptist, but the only problem was his baptism wasn't valid. He and his followers had never been baptized by immersion. And so what Roger Williams did was to commission one of his followers by the name of Ezekiel Holmes to baptize him. And then he turned around and baptized the others. Now, according to Scripture, that is not a valid baptism. That's not by the biblical standard. And it wasn't as if Williams and his congregation couldn't have received believer's baptism because there was a, a Baptist pastor in Dover, New Hampshire at that time by the name of Hansard Nollies, and he could have given them the proper baptism. And then aside from the baptism question, after Williams began his church in Rhode Island, he went back to England to seek a charter for the colony, and while he was there, his theological positions changed. I mean, by the time that he returned and got back to America, he changed his idea about the church altogether. He refused even fellowship with the church that he started, and he went out to live by himself among the Indians. So Williams renounced the right of baptism altogether. He said that there is a, the ministry no longer exists that is able to perform New Testament ordinances. He said that the true church actually does not exist any longer, but there are only prophets that explain religious truths. And then further, mixed in with that, he had sort of a, a little bit of an apocalyptic message that according to Revelation 11, verse 11, that there would be no true ministry on the earth until the prophets in Revelation 11, 11 had been resurrected from the dead. And so he sounds a little bit like a 1638 version of Harold Camping. Now, an interesting comparison between Roger Williams Oh, there is an interesting comparison, I should say, between Roger Williams and John Smith. Now, you may remember we talked about John Smith, who 
It's claimed started the Baptist movement in England, that that's where Baptists came from originally in England, was from John Smith. But he was much like Roger Williams. Neither one of them had proper baptism. Uh, John Smith actually went and joined up with the Mennonites who were practicing infant baptism, so he decided that that was all right. Roger Williams gave up on the church altogether and baptism altogether. And so it's easy for us to see that neither one of them have anything to do with Baptist churches, with true Baptist churches. They never were Baptists themselves. And so what's the conclusion again? Roger Williams was not a Baptist, and the church that he started was not a Baptist church because you can't have a Baptist church without proper baptism. Well then, where do we find the first Baptist church in America? Let's look at that. Letter C on your listening sheet is America's first Baptist church. Now, remember the name I just gave you, Hansard Nollies? Uh, he's the one who could have baptized Roger Williams and the rest of his congregation. Well, in 1638... He started a church in Dover, New Hampshire. Now, Hansard Knollys had become a Baptist in England. He was formerly a Church of England preacher, a clergyman in the Church of England, but he had been persuaded by Baptist beliefs, and so he converted to the Baptists. And when he did that, he was put into prison. And I don't know how he did this. I don't have the whole story for you tonight, but he escaped from prison. And when he escaped, he came to America and started a Baptist church in New Hampshire. Now, I have a picture here for you. It's a, there's a picture of handsome Hansard Nollies. And uh, sometimes his enemies called him Absurd Nolis instead of Hansard Nollies. Uh, Cotton Mather wrote this about Baptist. He said, I confess that there are some of these persons whose names deserve to live in our books for their piety, although their particular opinions were such as to be disserviceable under the declared and supposed interest of our churches. Of these were some godly Anabaptist, as namely Mr. Hansard Nollies of Dover. Now, when, when Cotton Mather spoke of the piety of Hansard Knowledge, and then at the same time called him an Anabaptist. That's what you call a backhanded compliment. Um, I have a preacher friend who's known for backhanded compliments. He'll compliment you in one breath, but then he takes another by a disparaging remark in the other. And that essentially is what is what uh, Cotton Mather did when he made this comment about Hansard Knowledge. Uh, uh, he was a, a, a pious man but he was an Anabaptist. That's a compliment that's not a compliment. So going on then, uh, there was also another Baptist church that was started about the same time by Dr. John Clark, and he started a Baptist church in Newport, Rhode Island. And both of those churches were in existence before Roger Williams' failed attempt. And interestingly enough, that, that church that was started by John Clark is still in existence today. Unfortunately, we would not claim it any longer as a true Baptist church because it's a part of the American Baptist Convention, USA, which we would, by our doctrine, consider to be apostate. Now, for the last topic this evening, and I'll try to get along here, the last topic that I want to finish with is Baptist and government. Now, if the Lord would allow us any pride for our role in American history, that is, besides the proclamation of the gospel, it, it would have to be for what Baptists have invaluably contributed to our country's religious freedom. Now, even though 
Baptists were able to establish Baptist churches in America, that doesn't really mean that the persecution of Baptists had, had ended. There were many men who were in the same position that Roger Williams was in. They were banished from colonies. They were punished because they believed in believers' baptism and because they believed in soul liberty. But Baptist people kept insisting on this. We insisted on separation of church and state, and, and for much of the time, we're the only ones that were actually fighting that battle. In both the northern and southern colonies of the United States, Baptists were derided. They were punished for, relu- uh, for their um, uh, views on politics and religion. And, and in really sort of an odd twist of history, in the 17th century, Baptist people were accused of child abuse because we would not baptize infants. And so what the state would do is they would come and take children away from Baptist people because they said you're guilty of child abuse because you will not baptize your children. Now, could you imagine the CPS coming to your house today and saying to you, we're going to take your kids away because you won't baptize them. Today they come and say, we're going to take your kids away because you forced them to go to church. I mean, ask, ask Leno and Julie about the state and foster children trying to get those kids to go to church. It's a completely different story. Well, Virginia, uh, Virginia is known as the, the state that pushed the hardest for independence in the, in the, uh, in the revolution, although that, I'm sure that would be disputed by Massachusetts because they fired the first shot. But uh, Virginia is generally considered to be the, in the forefront of the independence movement. And Virginia wanted freedom, but between the e- years of 1768 and 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was written, over half of Baptist pastors in Virginia served jail time because the Anglican Church said that they couldn't preach. And so while the pilgrims came to America for religious freedom, there wasn't any religious freedom for Baptists. But despite all the disrespect that we were given, Baptists were right up front in the fight to win independence from England. Now, we've had this discussion before. We had a little bit of it yesterday, as a matter of fact, as we were sitting around the table, uh, whether or not that uh, Christian people should have been revolutionary. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But I do know this, that Baptists were very tenacious in this country in seeking freedom from England. During the period uh, prior to the Revolutionary War, Baptists were just growing in leaps and bounds. Baptists were showing up everywhere, especially after the First Great Awakening. And uh, in the South and both in the North, there were, there were movements by Baptists to aid in the independence movement. In the North, you had men like Isaac Bacchus, who was a, a great Baptist who helped, uh, helped uh, in the, in the uh, colony of of uh, Connecticut to try to get religious freedom going there and get it established. In, in Virginia, there was a, uh, a Baptist evangelist by the name of John Leland. Uh, he actually helped to get James Madison elected to the Virginia State Legislature because Madison was in favor of religious freedom. And throughout the Revolutionary period, the acts of Baptists didn't go unnoticed. And so during that time, Baptist people began to win some very influential friends. For instance, I just mentioned James Madison, and James Madison had a very close friend that we all know by the name of Thomas Jefferson. And so both of them were members of the Virginia State Legislature. There was also Patrick Henry, who it's claimed that he defended Baptist preachers at trial, even though we don't actually have any proof of that. But we do know this, that Patrick Henry stood for religious freedom right along with the Baptist. And so in 1786, John Leland 
helped Madison and Jefferson to pass the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. This is 10 years after the Declaration of Independence. And so Virginia, that had previously jailed half of the Baptist pastors in the state, had now passed a law in which they guaranteed religious freedom, not only for Baptists, but for everybody, including Jews and, and Catholics and so forth. They could conduct worship as they saw fit. So Baptists just kept pushing and pushing until the law of religious liberty finally made it to be one of the amendments to the Constitution in 1791. And that's what separated church and state and actually made the United States the first secular nation. Did you realize that? The United States is the first secular nation. Going all the way back to the time of Christ, all all that, it's the very first secular nation. Now that's kind of odd. It's really kind of odd that Baptists held on to this New Testament principle of separation in church and state and actually became the authors of a secular nation. Now, interestingly, do you know what the last state was to adopt complete religious freedom? That was Massachusetts, and they did it in 1833. And so the first colony that was organized for freedom of religion under the Mayflower Compact, the first colony actually was the last to grant religious liberty to people of all faiths. Now, just to show you how closely allied that Baptists were to the cause of religious freedom in America, there was a a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Association in which Thomas Jefferson thanked them for their support. And it's in that letter that Thomas Jefferson first used this language that there is a wall of separation between church and state. It's actually in, the first time it's ever mentioned is in this letter that was sent by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Association thanking them for help. This is what Jefferson wrote. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declares that their legislature should make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and and state. And so here is a major accomplishment that might not have come about if it had not been for the tenacity of Baptists in America. We held on to this principle that was received from Christ and the apostles that the church and the state are two complete separate entities. Now for 1500 years Catholicism had fought against fought against freedom of religion, fought, fought against soul liberty. For 300 years, Protestants fought against that. Both Catholics and Protestants persecuted Baptist people under a church-state government. But Baptists still held on to this truth. We kept on holding on to that until God, by his grace, gave us a country where we could worship freely and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear. Well, something's happened, though, in... It took about 200 years, because our our country's 230-some years old now, but it it took about 200 years for Baptists to start slacking off on this thing of being able to preach the gospel freely. And now we've actually, uh, we're actually in danger of losing that freedom. You can't preach the gospel everywhere without interference now. Let me give an example of this. Uh, In the in the primary election in, in uh, what's that, 1st of June, I think it was, 
in, in the primary election, the government used our building with our permission. I mean, that's one of the things we do. I mentioned this before, but we, we, um, we have the election workers here. We have a polling place here, a precinct, and people can come in and vote. The election workers told us that we could not pass out tracts on election day in here in, on our own property. And what they did was Lino was sitting out in front of the building, and he was at a table passing out tracts as voters came in. And some of the voters complained about that, and so the election workers said, you can't do that on election day. Now, they commandeered our building, and they said, you can't do that on election day. Well, what we didn't know is we actually do have the right to do that. And uh, so uh, we, we made a call. Uh, first of all, I tried calling the Christian Law Association, but it was, it was late Friday before I could do that, or late Tuesday, rather, before I could do that. They're on the East Coast, and so I wasn't able to reach anybody. They were happy to return my call on Wednesday, which did no good at all. But uh, I couldn't get in touch with them. And so we called the election commissioner of Sonoma County, and talked with him. Was it, it was you, Lino, right? He called the election commissioner and talked with him. And after some a little bit of discussion on the issue, they said, you absolutely can pass out your tracts at your church. You, we can't stop you from doing that. Now, my point in this is we need to mark this date and remember it because that is going to be taken away. I promise you that's the thing that's going to be taken away. Either what they'll do is they'll go someplace else which is what we'll say, quite frankly, if, they ever, if the government comes to the place that says you can't give out religious information on your property, then the government's not going to use our building for elections. I mean, that's, that's, we've got to take that stand, I think. So um, you, mark, you mark it because that day's going to come when, when they're going to have such control that you're not going to be able to pass out your tracts or preach the gospel freely as we could before. Now, what I wonder about in this whole thing is that whether... Baptists are going to have the guts to do what our Baptist forefathers did. Are we willing to go all the way to the mat on this thing and try to go back to the days when we had complete religious freedom to do what we want to do, to preach the gospel everywhere that we want to preach it? And I just wonder, are Baptist people going to do that? And, of course, I hope that we do. Well, what I've given you tonight is just, just a little bit of a start of our Baptist heritage in America. I have quite a few more things that I want to talk to you about. And one of the things that I want to get into is the effect that certain religious movements have had on Baptist people. For instance, the First Great Awakening was very, very good for Baptist people. But the Second Great Awakening wasn't nearly as good. Even though Baptist churches flourished in the Second Great Awakening, especially on the frontier, which is where most of the Second Great Awakening happened, yet as a, in theological positions and so forth, uh, it became, started to be a degradation uh, of Baptist beliefs. And so in some ways, the Second Great Awakening wasn't so good for Baptist people. Then as we go on and we, uh, hopefully this is why, I still got in my mind at least to do this, that We'll, we'll take a look at the rise of Pentecostalism in America, which is actually a peculiarly American phenomenon because that's where, it, where that movement got started. Pentecostalism started right here, and what the American people have done is unleashed upon the world one of the very worst blights on Christianity that has ever happened. Even the Roman Catholics, who are the consummate pragmatists, have joined in the Pentecostal movement. So hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit about that as well. 
And you'll find Baptist churches that have been influenced by Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, and that's become a huge issue around the world for churches that are really trying to preach the gospel to people. So those are some things we'll try to look at as we get uh, into our future studies. So I hope you're still with me on Baptist history, uh, that I'm I'm not losing you here. Uh, Personally, I I find the study of it uh, very, very interesting to see what's happened in this country uh, to the Baptist church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time spent tonight, and we thank you for uh, the promise that you gave that there would be a church that exists all the way since the very time that Jesus started it here on the earth, that we can look at all these centuries and we find people that have believed the truth and that truth has come down to us today. Lord, help us to stand on those truths, uh, to never give up the principles that make us a true church of yours. And Lord, we, we, we know that by your grace that you will sustain us as we continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord. Bless this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org